Next weekend, New Yorkers and tourists alike will get the chance to snoop around at sites throughout the city that are typically off-limits to the public. It's all part of Open House New York Weekend. The event provides an all-access pass to hundreds of New York landmarks, businesses, parks, and even private homes. Good morning. I'm George Bolarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're taking a sneak peek at some of the places that'll be open for view during Open House New York weekend, Saturday, October 9th, and Sunday, October 10th. Consider it a warm-up for a five-borough marathon through the city's hidden, obscure, and often overlooked places. Renee Schacht is the executive director of Open House New York. She's holding the keys to unlock the doors to these unique sites next weekend. Renee, welcome to Cityscape. Good morning. So what is OHNY for those unaware? Open House New York is a nonprofit organization that focuses on architecture and design. And we're primarily known for one weekend out of the year in October. This year it's October 9th and 10th, where we open up around 350 sites throughout the five boroughs, all for free, educating the people about architecture and design. You unlock doors that are typically locked to the average New Yorker. We do try, yes, yes. Um, We go into MTA substations. We go into typical landmark buildings that you normally would never have access to. So, yeah, we do everything. Now, how many years have you been doing this? Open House New York was founded in 2001, and the first annual weekend took place in 2003. Now, how much has it grown over the years, would you say? Oh, my goodness. I think in the first year, they probably had around 50 to 60 sites, and now we have 350 sites. We have a family festival now at the Center for Architecture. We do tours, bike tours, bus tours, walking tours. I think at one point they had paddling tours. So, yeah, we've definitely grown a lot. And uh, many of our sites take reservations just because of the capacity issues and to avoid long lines. Which sites would you say fill up the quickest? It's really like usually the Woolworth building. Certain sites that just have such a historical value. Last year we had... um, a very special treat with the Atlantic Avenue Tunnel Tour. I was down there, amazing, in Brooklyn. Who knew this underground railroad track that is off-limits generally? But you actually have to climb through a manhole and go down. Amazing experience. Yes, and uh, and Bob Diamond, who does the tours, is a fantastic uh, man, too, as well. Yeah. If for no other reason, just so you can climb down, down the, manhole. the manhole cover. <laughs> How many times do you actually get to do that? Yes. Exactly. But it is amazing <laughs> there as well to see this abandoned railroad station. Yes, absolutely. Track. And it's it's massive. You think that just going through a small manhole cover, you would never you would never assume that there's something that massive underground. Yeah. One of my favorite stops last year was the Masonic Hall on West 23rd Street. And I have to say, Renee, I think that I left more confused about what the Masons do there than I was before I went in. But still, the architecture inside is amazing. It is beautiful. Absolutely. And that's probably one of our most popular sites, yes. They are, though, short on answers. <laughs> exactly. Although they come across and, and say that they're very they're willing to tell you anything and everything. But yes. You don't get all the answers, yeah. but you definitely get to see into their temple, yeah. What are some of your favorite sites? Well, this year we're doing a sludge boat. We worked with the DEP last year, and we opened up Newtown Creek Wastewater Treatment Plant, designed by what was formerly known Polshik Partnerships, um, and now it's ENIAD. And this year the DEP 
has opened up or given us access to a sludge boat. How many sites would you say one can realistically see in a weekend? Well, we had this um, one of our very strong enthusiasts uh, did a blog post last year, and I think... I don't know the exact number, but I think he did somewhere between 16 and 19, and he was very systematic and planned it out and rented a car, and he was with a friend. So it's a bit tough to see that many. Um, I think that is the most one's ever seen in the weekend, but I would probably give, you could probably see around three to four, depending if you want to tackle all five boroughs. It's a lot. I'm always amazed that people open their homes, their private homes, to the public. I know last year I went to the home of an architect and contractor on Barrows Street. There was a long line to get into this guy's apartment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Adam is opening up his house once again, but we're doing reservations to avoid the long lines because it is a co-op or it's a condo building, whichever the two. But, um, yes, we're going to try to avoid the long lines again. But many people do open up their private homes. We have this year Fairfax and Salmon's residence, which is a carriage house in the West Village, actually two carriage houses that were kind of combined early on. It's quite beautiful. I've seen it two years ago. No, this place on Barrow Street, I should point out, had a wallless bathroom. These are the kinds of things you're seeing. (laughs) Absolutely. Why do you think it is that people, New Yorkers, are so open to allowing strangers into their homes? Well, I think they definitely understand the importance of educating people about architecture and design. And either they're architects themselves or they just have a strong passion for architecture. So they're really just about getting people to know more about it. Are there any sites that you wish were on the list but have had difficulty gaining access to? There are many of those. Um, one of them is the Hearst Building we've been trying to open up. for, And a lot of these, um, the reasons why they can't participate is just because of the crowds or for security issues. Back in the day, we opened up City Hall, and I still would love to open up that during the weekend. But again, it's security issues. The Bank of America, the new skyscraper, um, we tried to get that. But again, security issues. All right, Renee, anything else about Open House New York Weekend that you would like to add? Well, I just hope that everyone is able to come out and join us on October 9th and 10th this year. It'd be great. Renee Schacht, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Renee Schacht is the executive director of Open House New York. You can plan your itinerary for next weekend by visiting ohny.org. Bring your appetite if you make the new Amsterdam market a stop on your OHNY tour. You'll find everything from fresh goat cheese to gourmet ice cream at this market under the FDR Drive in Lower Manhattan. It's open Sundays through December, and I was told every good market opens with the sound of a bell. Richard Shea, I'm from South Africa. Can you compare this to other markets that you've been? It's the best market I've ever been to. Why do you say that? It's a bold statement. It's small enough that you can you can see it all quickly and then, I don't know. It feels really how Borough Market felt in London 10 years ago. Uh, I've been, this is the second time I've been here and I really, the, it's really it got a great feel because you know, there are a couple of names from the city 
and then like a lot of surrounding uh, uh, farms and like a lot of artisan stuff which may you know it actually feels like you couldn't get it anywhere else which makes it exciting to come here and discover new foods that is going to be 12 or are you getting others my name is Ira Grable I am the owner cheesemaker of Berkshire Blue Cheese located in Dalton Massachusetts it's about three hours an enjoyable ride my daughter lives in the city we come here to visit and do the market and it's we spend quality time with each other it's really nice it's the best blue cheese ever <laughs> is that right I, I, absolutely it's fabulous blue cheese if, you have, if you've never tried it taste it it's great my name is Bob Davis I live in the city come to the market frequently what are some of the things that you've tasted so far today I had the duck I've had the blue cheese the Berkshire blue I had uh, some bread thank you and the pasta right around the corner all good you can have a whole meal, just sample it. I'm, uh, I'm trying to see if I can do this without spending any money. What's your favorite between the vermeil and the um, hibiscus berry? The vermeil. Okay, Hi, my name is Fanny Gerson, and I'm here with Lani Orkina. And what is that? Um, well, it's a company I started a few months ago that we do all things related to Mexican ice. So we do popsicles at another market, and we do aguas frescas, which is fresh fruit drinks, at the New Amsterdam market. Do you know where there is a Italian grocery or, or, or I think it's Italian. It is, yeah, yeah. it is an Italian. She only uses organic ingredients in everything that she makes anyway. My name is Julianne Fader. I'm from Manhattan. I'm Judith Fader. I'm also from Manhattan. So what are your initial thoughts of this market? I love it. We make a trip down here. We're from the Upper East Side. We try to come down here as many Sundays as possible throughout the year. I think this is a great thing for New York and sustainability, and people should really learn to enjoy foods from the area. It's a great thing for the city. It's a great thing for the farmers, and I hope they make something permanent of this. So you are regular customers. We're regular customers, and I think if, if people make a trip down here, they'll really get a whole new appreciation for what New York does as far as agriculture. And it's there's a, and wines and cheese, it's just everything that you can get. When we come here to buy dinner, you know, and, and you get lunch in the process. So. There's great samples too. It's a win-win for everyone. Even if you don't buy anything, you'll enjoy seeing the products and tasting and sampling. It's a, it's, and it's just a beautiful market. Everything's perfect and gorgeous and the, the fruits and the pies and the vegetables, and it's wonderful. Bring the kids down. There's ice cream. There's everything. My name is Robert Lavalva, and I'm the director of New Amsterdam Market. Now, this market here is pretty much a dream come true for you, right? A lot of hard work went into this. I would definitely say a lot of hard work has gone into it and continues going into it, yes. Not just on my part, but on everybody who's supporting us and contributing towards this effort. Where does this market draw its inspiration from? Well, like all projects of this nature, there are many, many sources of inspiration, but I would say one of the most, uh, one of the most uh, telling is um, a visit I paid about five years ago to London, where I, I came across a market called Borough Market, and I happened to, to come in there just as the market was opening one morning. And the hubbub of activity and the kind, the range of foods that were there, but also the, the market culture that was there because this market had been a market for well over 200 years and there were all sorts of traders, as they called them there, who were, who were not only the farmers but the people who were sourcing food. They were adding this new dimension to the market 
and it was very fascinating to see that and, and wonder why New York didn't have a market quite like that. And uh, upon becoming more curious about it and researching our own history of markets, I realized that actually New York once did have markets exactly like that, and not even not too long ago. And so it became very, um, it became, that's part of the dream is in, in a way to, uh, not just simply to bring a market like this to the city, but really to revive this tradition that the city here has had itself since its very beginnings. How many vendors do you have here on a Sunday? Well, we have been working with about 120 vendors overall, and we've had as many as 75 at, on this site at any one given time. Now that the market is going to be held every week instead of periodically, we're down to about 40 or so because obviously not all of them can make it every single time. But already the fact that it's weekly, we're starting to draw some attention as a weekly market and we're starting to build up the vendors again. So I would say we'll probably have about between 50 and 60 vendors here. Robert, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. The new Amsterdam market is a featured destination during next week's Open House New York weekend. The market's located at the East River in Lower Manhattan on South Street between Beekman Street and Peck Slip. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This week, we're giving you a preview of Open House New York weekend, Saturday, October 9th and Sunday, October 10th. The event opens the doors to hundreds of locations throughout the five boroughs that are often closed to the public or simply overlooked, like Teardrop Park North and its little sister, Teardrop Park South in Battery Park City. I caught up with the woman who helped design the unique spaces. My name is Laura Solano, and I'm a landscape architect with Michael Van Valkenburg Associates. We're standing in Teardrop Park, just about dead center. Teardrop Park is located in Battery Park City. It's the last major park that was built by um, Battery Park City. And um, it is an oasis, not from the city, but in the city. It's a relatively small park. It's only about two acres, um, and maybe for New York that's big. But we've managed to put a lot into the two the two acres. Um, it's filled with places for people of all ages. Um, it's very lush, and you know where you can't you know you're in New York City when you're in this park. But at the same time, you could also be in the Hudson River Valley. You can be north of here if it weren't for the tall buildings surrounding us. Yes, that's true. And in fact, um, Tim Carey, who was the head of Battery Park City when we did this job, um, which we started in 1999 and finished in 2007, he gave us one, um, one sentence, which is, I want you to bring to New York the experience of the Hudson River Valley for kids and we thought oh my word how are we you know how do how do you do that I don't know but it just so happened to be a time when uh, Michael Van Valkenburg was going back and forth between his hometown and in the Hudson Valley and he started noticing geologic formations and that's a big theme in the park as well not just planting but also uh, geologic formations a very strong rock element all around us here that's right. And all different forms and um, from different places. Um, we worked with the New York State geologists to visit many, many different quarries and state parks to look at different types of stone 
to decide what would go in the park. And what kind of stone is this? Most of the stone that you see are uh, glacial erratics from different places all over the state. So tumbled millions of years ago and made soft for kids to climb on. When you think Hudson River Valley, you also think water. Are there water elements in this park? Yes, there are. In fact, we're standing right next to um, what is at the heart of the park, which is the um, the children's uh, fountain area. Although I've seen adults in it, too. We're all kids at heart. (laughs) Some more than others. But it is um, a water fest, and there are, you know, there's water coming out of the rocks, water coming out of the floor. I see kids take buckets of water all over the park. Um, This is the the major uh, piece um, that has water. But you can hear it, you know, it, it adds another layer of the landscape to your experience with the park. There is also a very large ice wall here, what we call the ice wall. Um, it's another water feature, and it is 175 feet long and 27 feet at its highest um, edge. And it is uh, made of beautiful, beautiful New York State uh, bluestone, and in you know the most marvelous marbled colors. Um, and it's very textured. It, it's like nothing else you've ever seen. What kind of canvas did you have to work with to create this? This used to be a parking lot. Is that right? It it was an absolutely flat site. Well, let's walk through the tunnel. Sure. And if we can make our way to Teardrop Park South, you can point out some of the aspects of that, because I know that is going to be a stop on the Open House New York tour. I guess you want to show that off, huh? Your newest work. Oh, yes, yes. And it's, it's a great companion to this park You can hear we're in the tunnel now. So we're crossing Murray Street, which is just to the south of Teardrop Park North into what is called Teardrop Park South. Clever name, huh? And you can see some of the similar themes in the other, but there's a a sophistication here because this is much more like a courtyard, and a courtyard in landscapes is defined as a place that's surrounded by buildings and it usually services those buildings. Well, I thank you so much for the tour. An amazing creation here in Lower Manhattan. Oh, thank you very much. I I hope people come and see it and, and thank you for asking us about it. Laura Solano helped design Teardrop Parks North and South in Battery Park City. They're featured sites in next week's Open House New York weekend. As far as the name Teardrop, Laura says the master plan graphic showed a teardrop-shaped landscape, and the name stuck. Grab the Dramamine and head just north of Battery Park City to experience a piece of Coast Guard history during OHNY weekend. A historic steamship dubbed Lilac is located at Pier 40. We climbed on board for a tour. That's the original bell. It um, was saved by a crew member when the ship was decommissioned. And technically, um, still property of the U.S. Coast Guard. And when we got it from the crew member, somehow the Coast Guard heard about it. (laughs) And we did have to go with the bureaucracy and and get all certified and properly um, documented so we could keep it. (laughs) But we do. We do have it. 
and it's really cool that we have. My name is Mary Habstrit, and I'm the museum director and vice president of the Lilac Preservation Project, the nonprofit that owns the Lilac. What an amazing ship we are on. It is, and it's unique because it's the last steam-powered ship to uh, be part of the Coast Guard fleet, and it still has its original steam engines. Now, where are we right now? Describe this place. Uh, we're in the pilot house or wheelhouse. It's the cabin from which the ship was steered. And here we have the wheel, literally the wheel, and the radar, sonar, um, gyroscope, and, and other equipment that was used to navigate the ship, as well as telegraphs that were used to communicate with the engine room. How old is this ship? 1933 is the year that it was built, and it was built for the U.S. Lighthouse Service, which used to be a separate federal agency. And in 1939, when the Coast Guard was formed, it became a Coast Guard ship. So how was it originally utilized? Um, it was originally utilized to serve lighthouses by bringing supplies out to lighthouses. They're often in very remote areas that you can only reach by boat. Um, also would um, bring new crews out to relieve lighthouse keepers, bring inspectors out to you know, check that everything's ship-shape at the lighthouses, and also maintain buoys. And that's actually a really important role, and it's the reason there's a crane on the forward deck here, was to lift buoys out of the water to be repaired and serviced. And then when it was taken over by the Coast Guard, how was it used? Actually, the same way. Um, it's just that um, the duties of the Lighthouse Service became duties of the Coast Guard when it was formed. And uh, it continued to be a Coast Guard ship until 1972, which was really unusual for a steam-powered ship to be um, uh, on duty for that long. Was it ever called in to respond to maritime disasters? It um, was called in on a couple of ship collisions and fires on the Delaware River. That is actually where the ship served. Um, it wasn't originally a Hudson River ship. Um, it served the Delaware River estuary. But it, it was called in an emergency to you know, lend a hand and help people get off the ships that were damaged or on fire um, and get people to safety. Was it ever used during wartime? Was it ever called into duty? It was. In World War II, it was painted gray to camouflage it against the water, and it was actually armed and had depth charges on board as well. How many crew members would have been on board this ship? Um, when it w worked for the Lighthouse Service, it was about 24, um, and it doubled when the Coast Guard took over. They usually kept about just about 50 officers and crewmen on board. Can you walk us around a little bit and show us and point out yeah, some of the things absolutely. that we're looking at? Um, let's uh, peek down here in the captain's cabin. It's sort of cozy, but um, one thing that uh, the captain or master of the ship had was privacy. He was really responsible for the ship all the time, 24 hours a day, even when he was asleep, which is why his uh, cabin is right off of the wheelhouse here. And he was the only one who had his own bathroom. So those are the perks of office. Pays to be the captain. <laughs> Absolutely. So now we're in the engine room, which is the heart of the lilac, and we hope to make it a beating heart again. Um, there are two engines, one for each propeller, and they're called triple expansion engines because they have three gradually larger cylinders. The steam, when it is under, is nice and fresh from the boiler and has lots of pressure, comes in at the high-pressure cylinder, the small one, and it gets recycled through each of these um, where more surface area is needed each time to do the same amount of work. 
Now, as far as the shape of the ship today, how much work needs to be done to restore it? Because I know you are working to do that. Well, there's a huge amount of work. Um, everything from scraping and painting uh, the steel to refinishing the woodwork to restoring the engines. Um, the engines are the really key item that we wanted to work on because that's what's unique about the ship. And it's also the thing that will take the most work and the most money to re- restore. So right now you can't start this baby up? No, the only way we can move is with the tugboat. What do you envision for the future of this ship? What can we expect for the Lilac? Well, um, we'd like to have educational exhibits and give educational tours, especially for school children. Teach them about the history of steam and about the history of ships, about the river. And so we're trying to be part of the community and offer free public programming. We always have great views. You can see the... um, Uh, Lackawanna Ferry and Rail Terminal over in Hoboken and um, Stevens Institute on the Great Green Hill over there Um, and uh, uh, the rest of Hudson River Park down below us. Mary, you may just have the greatest office in all of New York City. (laughs) I think I do. Mary Habstreet is museum director of the historic steamship Lilac at Pier 40 on Manhattan's west side. Tours will be offered as part of next week's Open House New York Weekend. OHNY Weekend includes sites all over New York City, and this may be your last chance for a while to get a glimpse inside Urban Glass in Brooklyn. The glassmaking studio is closing for renovations next year and won't reopen until 2012. I got a tour from associate director Becky Melchione. Now, Becky, I'm very familiar with drinking out of them, but I have no idea about how to use glass as an art form. You, of course, do. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of different ways that you can use glass. You can blow glass, cast glass, fuse glass, flamework glass, sandblast glass. There's a bunch of other techniques as well. Now, what can you make doing all of what you just said? You can make anything from a free-form sculpture, vessels of any size, or just about any size. Wait a minute, did you say vessels, vessels of any size? Um, you know, vases, glasses. Thank you, because I was thinking boat. You did no, not no, mean no. boat. No, although there is an artist, a very well-known artist, who does cast what he calls boats. So you can make boats, too. <laughs> but you can make anything from jewelry. You can do goblets, like really intricate stems and goblets. It's really up to the artist's imagination. Now, Urban Glass has been here for more than three decades now, am I right? We've been at this location for 20 years. Um, We were located in downtown Manhattan on Mulberry Street and Great Jones Street for about 10 years in total. And we've been here in Brooklyn for 20, and we hope to be here for another 20. Now, Urban Glass allows artists, of course, to work with glass. Are there many venues in New York City to work with glass? We are the largest. Um, There's a couple of small, what we call hot shops, which would be, you know, glass blowing. I think there's two or three still around in New York, but we're the only comprehensive studio. What, in your opinion, makes this a significant art form? I think it's a material that has properties of no other material. You can use those properties to advance your creative idea and to be able to create something that would, wouldn't be the same in any other medium. I think that's the benefit of working with glass. Now, I read on your website that you have two furnaces here, 
and you melt down 2,000 pounds of glass a day? Yes. We, um, the way the furnaces work is there's two. They're each about 1,000 pounds, and we alternate them. So basically, we're melting one furnace. People use the glass in that, and while that's happening, we're melting the other one. So that way, as soon as glass is used in the one, we can switch over to the other. So it probably ends up, we probably use 2,500 pounds, 3,000 pounds a week. I also understand that you work with underprivileged women to teach them how to work with glass and to make an income from it. Yes. That's one of the projects that I would say we're most proud of. It's um, called the Bead Project. It was founded, I think, 11 or 12 years ago now. And it was founded by one of the employees of Urban Glass who was a bead maker and, you know, learned learned the techniques fairly quickly and started making beads and started selling them. And she sort of had this little green light and said, wait a second, you know, we can teach other people this and, you know, help them raise their incomes. Can you show me around a little bit, Becky? Absolutely. Come on. You know, we've got tons of machines and fans and whatnot blowing to keep the heat in the furnaces and the glory holes and away from the furnace and glory holes, depending on what we're trying to do. So these bigger square rectangular shaped things, these are the furnaces. And this is where the, the molten glass is. It's about 1,000 pounds. It's kept at about 2,200 degrees. When we do something that's called charging, which is like putting in unmelted glass, we raise that temperature to about 20. Becky Melchione is the Associate Director of Urban Glass, one of the many featured sites in Open House New York Weekend, Saturday, October 9th, and Sunday, October 10th. You can see a complete list of locations at ohny.org. I hope you enjoy this morning's preview of the yearly event. I know I'll be out there taking advantage of the all-access pass next weekend will bring. Hope to see you somewhere along the way. My thanks to senior producer Andrea McCreary and producer Morlene Chen. Yeah.